When you have that one moment, this when you actually achieve success for this brief flashing moment in ballet, it's like a drug. And so a lot of the times you're spending, you're spending most of your time frustrated and tired and sore and sick of what you're doing. But then you have that one flash of kind of brilliance or this emotional endorphin rush on stage. And you're constantly on the search to get that again. Right. From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Alex Miller, president and CEO of the Florida Trucking Association. If being a woman in this role was not unexpected enough, Alex holds a doctorate in interdisciplinary humanities, was a college professor, plays the oboe, and was a world-class ballet dancer. Not exactly the typical career path to run an organization associated with the image of tough guys living life on the roads of our state and beyond but there is not much typical about Alex. After a successful career in dance and academia, Alex transitioned to communications and advocacy, which she said was essentially the same as teaching, just applying the skills in a different way. The New York native and mother of twin girls now leads an industry responsible for transporting virtually everything we need to live and thrive in Florida. She believes they are up to the challenge. We began our conversation talking about growing up in New York, well, it was definitely pretty idyllic. A lot of a lot of snow, a lot of skiing in the winter, and pool and tennis and golf in the summer. Um, the nice thing about Albany is that it is really centrally located. So you know, it's four hours to Montreal, two two hours by train to New York City, two and a half to Boston. Mm-hmm. You can see the mountains of Vermont, you know, from from the valley of of the Hudson Valley of, in Albany. So we. There was always a lot of travel and experiencing different things because it was so easy to get to a lot of different places. Right. It was in, I don't know, is that considered upstate New York? Is anything other than the city upstate New York? This is a real issue for people, I think, for people in Albany because uh, it is only two hours north of New York City. Right. It's not Buffalo or something. Right. Right. There's, you know, it's still four hours uh, north to get to Canada. So we're really more, we like, we're more or upper state, or <laughs> the Hudson Valley region. Right. So. Okay. So people commute from there? They can. I think more more frequently they have an, an apartment in New York City from Monday through Friday. Right. And then go back to their families over the weekend. Yeah, that makes sense. So when I was older, we would do the reverse, obviously. Right. <laughs> As the parents came home to Albany, we would leave for New York City. Right, right. Um, I see. Yeah. So tell me about your family, your parents, and you have a sister too, right? I do. Uh, So my father recently retired. He was uh, an attorney uh, who actually also was a bill drafter for uh, the state assembly. 
Okay. And then my mother is a clinical psychologist, although she, I don't know, I think she has three master's degrees and a PhD. Um, <laughs> it's tough to keep. It's tough to keep track of her when she left or when I went to my first year of college. She actually did her uh, residency at Harvard Med for her clinical psychology degree. Wow. So little educated woman a little difficult to keep up with but <laughs> but um yeah so so she actually stayed at home with us when we were younger and then went decided to go back to school which was a a real project for her yeah. and the family yeah what do you remember most about those years where as far as family were you a close family did you a lot do a lot together what was the dynamic of those of that time i think my family kind of operated really I don't want to say independently, that sounds cold, but everyone was empowered to do what they wanted to do and take ownership of it. I think when, I, when I'm saying this, there's a loaded statement of kind of dance moms or ballet moms right. of, of parents who really live through their children in their successes. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those children that as as young as I can remember, I think seven or eight years old, I was dropped off at the ballet studio every day. I, I had to do those things on my own. Um, and so I think it, it created a real sense of agency and that it, w- it was always up to me. You know, I was, never, I was never asked if I did my homework or when there was a test. I, it was just expected that I would do it. And if I failed, it was also on me. Okay. I saw in age six, you said seven or eight. So somewhere in that, those early years, you took your first ballet lesson? Yeah. So I think I was trying to remember this in preparing for this conversation. <laughs> I think I was in Saratoga Springs. Uh, they have um, the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, mm-hmm. and that's the summer home for New York City Ballet. So I think I was four or five when my mother would bring me to the matinee performances. And I'm pretty sure it was Swan Lake, although I really honestly can't remember. That's but a I, good guess. Though, it's a probably. good guess, although maybe not with New York City Ballet, but she, it, a good guess of what she would choose instead of a, you know, abstract postmodern ballet. Right. Uh, so I think that is when I saw it and I decided I really wanted to start taking ballet classes. And at that point, I was taking kind of creative movement, more open, less less technique classes for coordination purposes. And I, I remember really bugging my mother about it for a while. And so I think I started my first ballet class was about six or seven years old. Okay. But when I was in, when I was in first grade, we had to do a time capsule for 2001. And I wrote, I want to be a dancer. And that is a fact. And of course I spelled, <laughs> I spelled dancer with an S. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's close enough. Right. <laughs> um, all right. So you knew, I mean, you, you saw the dancing and said, that's something I want to do, right? Right. And then you started lessons. And how did that go? Was it tough? How did, how did it start? I think when it started, um, I was really successful initially. I was, I was definitely shy. I was never the, kind of the loudest dancer in a ballet studio. Um, I, you mean I, with your body? Right. I, you know, just kind of... Um, getting the most attention. Okay. I, I would be a little more quiet. Um, you know, I might not, I probably was not the most quickly noticeable, I would say. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I thank, thankfully had kind of the right physique for it, you know, tall and long limbs and 
really high arches, which is really one of the things that will kill a career, mm. uh, whether or not, you know, if you have everything else, if you have bad feet, it's it really stalls out a career. Right. Um, and then as I got a little bit older, I, I definitely started getting weaker um, as I was growing. I, I grew, I got thinner and thinner. Um, gangly, you know, kind of looking like a, a daddy long legs and, you know, not not in total control over my body. And so that was a real struggle for several years um, of, of trying to figure out. This was kind of pre-conditioning and Pilates and things like that right. that started being integrated with dance technique and training. So at that time, you just kind of were what you were as far as your body? Right. Yeah. You know, the funniest thing is that as I got older and kind of left the day-to-day professional dance world of dancing on stage, I started using – I started integrating running as just a form of exercise. And it turns out there's this old wives' tale that running ruins a ballet body. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that it had actually strengthened strengthened me in exactly the way I needed to to improve my technique. Okay. When you start something young like that – did you enjoy it? I mean, was it did you find joy in dancing early? I definitely did. I also I think enjoyed the challenge of it um, because it's it's a constant quest for perfection, you know, which is always, of course, elusive. Uh, there was there was definitely a period of time kind of going into those pre-tween tween years where I would drag myself to the studio the last last thing I wanted to do every day was leave school immediately, change into a leotard and tights in the car, and get right. dropped off for three hours. Uh, but, you know, I guess for good or for bad, I pushed through that. Right. Anyone who pursues an athletic or physically artistic kind of pursuit like this or um, interest, you kind of give up a, quote, normal childhood to some degree, right? So what was that like? What kind of sacrifices did you make? How did this impact your day-to-day living? I rarely I – don't, I don't think I ever went to a Friday night football game. Hmm. Um, I never had a Saturday. Uh, a lot of times Sundays would be rehearsal days. Uh, so it was every night – as I got older, it was every night from 4 to 9 p.m. in a studio. Um, I really stopped taking vacations Ballet is so competitive that if you're missing a week or in, in summer, for example, maybe that's when casting happens or auditions happen. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not there, you don't get the part or you fall behind. So while friends were going off on vacations, even my family was going off on vacations, I'd be staying home. I, uh, my, I guess going into my junior year – I went to uh, Milwaukee Ballet for the whole summer, but since they're on a different schedule, I actually left school early, didn't take my end-of-the-year exams, and then had to go back and take the statewide, you know, I guess they're FSAs here, but the right. Regents exams in, in New York, had to take those, you know, three months after mm-hmm. school ended. So um, it, was, it was definitely, there was definitely kind of a lack of childhood. Right. And how did you feel about that at the time? I don't know if I was ever really a kid. Hmm. I was never one to kind of be mean dance or no dance. Ca- right, care. I, yeah, I was always a pretty serious kid. Uh, I feel like sometimes I'm actually more laid back than I was. I'm more laid back right now than I was at age six. 
Right. I'm interested to know the difference between dancing and performing. So did you enjoy the performing part of it, being on stage, having the bright lights? Was that intoxicating to you or did it, was it just about the dance? I think it's always – I think for most people it's about the performance. I think uh, technique classes are tedious. You're doing the same thing over and over for tens of thousands of hours uh, so it gets really monotonous, and you know, even trying to strive for perfection uh, can get a little boring. Sure, um, you know, there's not there's not so many like variations of things that make it exciting, and I think it's always. I keep talking about it, but you'll probably end up figuring out how to bring it back at the end of this. But this, um, when you have that one moment, this when you actually achieve success for this brief flashing moment in Mm -hmm. ballet, it's like a drug. And so a lot of the times you're spending, you're spending most of your time frustrated and tired and sore and sick of what you're doing. But then you have that one flash of kind of brilliance or this emotional endorphin rush on stage. And you're constantly on the search to get that again. Right. Right. Would you say you achieve that very many times in your career? I think I think I got it every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> in retrospect, that's that's hard to think about. I, right. Yeah. I mean, on stage and in the classroom, definitely. Yes. Right. Okay. I, you had mentioned the part about not liking creative freedom in your younger years dancing. You wanted to know what you were supposed to do. But what else would you say that dancing taught you? What did you learn most about yourself from your time dancing? I definitely learned perseverance and a lack of fear. I think there are a lot of things moving all over the place for my career, for school, for changing careers, for taking these, pardon the pun, leaps of faith. (laughs) Right. I never had to really even think about it because I think when you start falling on your face at eight years old. Literally. Literally literally falling on your face um, and, you know, auditions after auditions and uh, rejections, you know, it's, it's, it, it's constant rejection. It's constant when you're in a classroom, in a ballet classroom, it's rare to get the praise. You are constantly being criticized. Now, I, I mean that in the actual definition of criticism. Right. Uh, but it is constant evaluation and giving giving that student these pointers of what to do better, how to fix things. And so you really do develop a tougher skin. And I think that's what I brought out of it and and the fact that you know, when it comes to procrastination or that's, I think you kind of, you have to leave that behind because if you're, if you're in a ballet studio from four to nine o'clock every single day, you still have to do your homework. Right. You still have to study for tests. You have, and so it just became a real way of life of just being really focused and working hard with yeah. that, without that fear. Did you have any other interests? Did you have time to even think about anything else, music or sports or I actually did do tennis for quite a while. I think it was about age 12 that I had to make the decision to give it up because I was also going to um, 
summer camps, all-day summer camps for tennis. Tennis kind of runs in our family, multi-generations. Okay. So um, I ended up really giving that up. And then I was actually um, an oboist. I saw that. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Which I, tell me about that. Yeah. No. Um, well, I was... This, I guess this is this is telling now that I think about it. Uh, I guess in fourth grade, just in elementary school, started with the violin because we didn't really have band instruments in elementary school. Right. And then I moved into middle school, and number one, I heard that being in the orchestra was not cool. So I had to reevaluate that. <laughs> and then, but then other people, other friends were joining the band. And so, you know, mostly the flute or the clarinet. Sure. And Typical I'd, girl instruments. It, that's right? right. And I decided, I looked around the band and I said, there's no oboe. Because it's stinking hard instrument to play. <laughs> well, but I knew it because of Peter and the Wolf. Peter and the Wolf. The ballet. 100%. Yes. Yeah. So I the said. The bassoon and the oboe, big parts and Peter and the Wolf. Exactly. The duck. <laughs> Nothing better than the duck. So, um, honestly, I decided there's no oboe, so I'll be the best oboe in, in the middle school. Yeah. So that's how I decided to play it. And then I was trained by one of the top oboists in New York City. He would, he was one of those commuters. He would play in Lincoln Center um, and come back and on the weekends, usually like a Sunday morning when I wasn't taking in training. Right. Um, so I did that through high school and then actually picked it back up uh, when, I was, when I was teaching because a, a rural orchestra needed an oboist. <laughs> so... Well, an oboe, too, is I'm a band person, grew up, you know, all my school years playing French horn. and um, But oboe is no joke. I mean, oboe is one of those instruments that is absolutely the most unbearable noise to hear someone playing. Badly. Right, badly. <laughs> or it is a ethereal, beautiful, you know, very unique sound that has a special place in the orchestra or band. I totally agree. Um, so with... with it, Oboe is one of those. You're right, and it's also really the really tense, right, uptight people play it. So I feel like I'm hitting a theme here. Um, <laughs> I still have nightmares about hitting the double reed to my teeth mm. while picking it up to play on stage. Like I will, I will to this day have those nightmares. Right, because what happens if you if the, if it hits your teeth? It's over. The, right, the, the reed breaks, and, and that's it. You've got no shot. You're right. <laughs> well, that never came true, though, right? The it, nightmare never happened? It it came close a couple of times yeah, when I was yeah. younger, but not, not recently. I need to yeah. stop. If I'm going to have neurotic dreams, like, <laughs> if it could preferably not be about the oboe, that right. would help. So after you finish high school, and so was college automatic? If you wanted to be a professional dancer, did most of those, did the dancer, was like college the obvious next step, or was that a decision to make? That was a decision. Um, I was auditioning for professional ballet companies. You know, it, it's easy to go to New York City on the weekends and jump into that circuit or cattle calls. Right. But I knew that I really – going to college does not mean that you can't become a professional ballet dancer. It does mean probably you're not going to, you know, the big three, which was fine. That was not really an option for me. Like New York City Ballet, American Ballet Theater. You really need to jump in there probably about 16, 17. Okay. But for me, I thought it uh, it was would just be a smart move. First of all, the expectation of college was a given. Uh, but also, all you need is one broken ankle mm. or, you know, torn ACL. And then you're left 
with nothing. You're not and, in school. You right. can't dance. And, you know, there are a couple of options of, you know, Juilliard or North Carolina School of the Arts. But at the same time, that also didn't give the, the academic background that would be needed should I decide either not to be, go into the ballet world or something happens and it pulls me out. Right. So you, so you decided to go the college route. I went the college route. In Louisiana. Actually, I first started at Skidmore College in Saratoga because okay. I will tell you, my high school grades were not great. Really? Well, I was I was on tour for mm. a lot of junior and senior year, so I was missing a lot of school. Right. I would roll in. The tour bus would drop people off at 4 o'clock in the morning, and the professional dancers would go home and sleep, and I would go straight to my chemistry class or and having absolutely no idea kind of what was going on. What so how were you allowed to do that? That seems like a, a big exception to what would be expected normally. Well, you could figure out how to work around these rules. <laughs> I never, you couldn't, I think the rule in New York, at least at that point, was you could only miss 30 days of school a year. But I missed a lot more, but adjusted when I missed. So if I got in really late, I would go to school for two hours. So if you were there at all, it would count right, as a Right, day. so I would just okay. kind of adjust the day. Uh, so you were working the system. I was working the system, <laughs> yes. I did get a little, I did get a waiver for PE after a while, though. So I didn't, yeah. I no longer did do PE. So that, that helped. Sense. That helped. So how did you go from Skidmore to Tulane? So uh, I went to Skidmore because, quite frankly, I was um, at a legacy. Okay. And I applied early decision to see if I had any options with my less than stellar grade point average. Uh, so I got in, uh, and it's a lovely it's a lovely school. It has a great arts program. So it's a liberal arts it college? Is. Well, so it was that I could study English, I could study dance, and I could study music. Perfect. And it's, you know, very kind of, yeah, liberal arts oriented, so kind of even developed an old, my own major or idea with that and doing everything I love, but then also doing the things that I need to do. Right. And... I got into there. I got there for the first audition for placement for ballet classes, and there was just something. There was just it's instantly this moment of, why am I still doing this? What, hmm. you know, this doesn't feel right. All of a sudden, the dancing part. The dancing part. Yeah. Wow. So I spent a semester there where I did. I decided to take off a whole semester. The first time I've ever taken a break longer than two weeks from dance since right. I was seven, and um, really got into my English classes, really loved reading and writing, and decided that if I'm not going to be here to do the thing that I was was supposed to do here, right. I really need to find a different experience. I need to kind of enjoy life a little yeah. and see what else is out there. And so what more different of a place... Than from Saratoga Springs, New York, than New Orleans, Louisiana. Right. So I that went, seems like a big change. It was, and I went. Yeah, joined a sorority, took English classes. Of course, hesitantly got back into ballet just as something to you know stay in shape, and it roped me right back in. So when you were doing ballet at Tulane, it was more recreational, or was it in formal classes, or what? What did that look like? It was intended to be recreational. It was in, it was classes, and then I joined their college dance company. Like taking bowling in college or something. No, well, they were classes, but they had they had tiered level classes. So the the level 
the skill level. So they were kind of surprised when they saw you dance, I'm guessing? You know what? The funny thing about Tulane is I was in a classroom with a former apprentice with the Pacific Northwest Ballet who was a full-time student at School of American Ballet in New York City. Okay. So you I weren't was, the only one. I was, no, I was one of about five. And, you know, one became a law professor. Another one became, went to MIT for biochemistry. It seemed that this really strange utopia of these <laughs> former professional right. ballet dancers who decided, exa- I mean, just exactly what, what I was doing. Right. Just wanted to get an idea of what the rest of your college experience was like in Tulane. Was it, did you just enjoy the freedom and the change? And it was, because it's a pretty drastic change from what you were used to. It was. What I couldn't believe was how much time I had on my hands. (laughs) It probably seemed like the day was 50 hours long. Listen, I I ended up getting two part-time jobs because there was so much time. And this was still, I was still enjoying Bourbon Street and... You know, Greek life uh, and doing ballet. Uh, you know, now it was just that I would roll into rehearsals with you know crawfish on my <laughs> on my shirt. You know, and smelling of beer before right. going sure. to rehearsal. Uh, but yeah, it was it was so much fun, um, and it was it was such an eye opening experience to live in New Orleans. Yeah, that I spent most summers there too. So how how did you um your next step? After graduation was you came to Tallahassee, right? Right. So why Tallahassee and how did you end up here um, to pursue your master's degree? Tallahassee has one of the top dance master's programs in the country. I think I applied to NYU, Iowa, Mills College, FSU. It's an amazing program. Right. And at during those years, you also were uh, you were involved with the Tallahassee Ballet? I did. Right? I I guess still still had too much time on my hands somehow. <laughs> Looking for something to wedge that ex- <laughs> right. something in that extra hour. Yeah, so it was that was a nice experience, uh, and and definitely made a lot of contacts unknowingly uh, that I brought with me to the future. Okay, well, great. Well, that's obviously a beloved institution in this town for many generations. It is. Yeah. Um, all right. So after you get your master's in fine arts and dance, right. And then you um... started uh, University of Tennessee at Martin. Okay. So, as far as the university hiring process for listeners, uh, it's it's worse than trying to aud- audition for a ballet company. I think. I think the year that I was graduating, there were probably two to three jobs that fit my description in the in the country. Okay. So you have. And what, are, what job is that specifically? So this one was, you know, ballet emphasis, teach dance history, run the the school. So you're looking dance for a ensemble. faculty position. A faculty position, okay. right? And um, so you'll have hundreds of people applying for jobs. So one of the reasons that people find themselves graduating from a master's program and not getting a job is usually because they're not willing to do a few things that they don't want to do, teach a, you know, teach a couple of courses they don't want to teach, mm-hmm. or move to an area that they don't want to live in. So I took the job. I hitched, my, I hitched a trailer to my car. I drove into the, for the first time to Martin, Tennessee, <laughs> and just started bawling. Oh, no. <laughs> like, what did I do? It was a last-minute hire. I never went. 
well, on campus. You didn't check out campus first. I, I didn't. <laughs> it's a good thing I didn't. It's a lovely school. It has three traffic lights or did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was population 3,000. Where is Martin in Tennessee? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, literally. No, no, is it? it is wet northwest Tennessee, so it is a, an northwest. hour south okay. of Paducah, Kentucky, and two and a half hours north of Memphis. But just like myself, there were about seven or eight other first-year university teachers. We all we are all coming in at the same time, so we kind of we really made the best of it. Were um, they coming from? I guess everybody's cities, coming from right. bigger places. Bigger, right. <laughs> it's hard to find one that was, wasn't coming from a bigger right. place. Yeah, right. but all over the country, and so we immediately all connected and kind right. of set up schedules. We did Thanksgivings together. I oh, mean, nice. we're, yeah, we were all you know fresh out of school, all pretty young, uh, no families. You know, we didn't mm-hmm. we didn't come with families in tow, so we we had a good time. And students came to UT Martin to dance. Not at first. Um, I actually was hired as it was a one year position, which you take what you can get to right. kind of get into that system. And they hired me to shut down the program. There was one there was one dance major, and the the university system had decided to stop the program. And but they needed to get that one student out. Wow! So I took the job as you know. I'll sh- I'll sh- I'll prove myself for one year. I've got one year's one year of experience under my belt, right? And I'll get another job. But it didn't work out that way. It didn't work out that way. So what happened? So about three months in, I started getting some interest in classes, and you know, I was running this little performing group that was there, and I just went to my chair and said, you know, I'm looking at this curriculum. And, you know, it has this kind of machine gun approach of let's just teach everything and not have any focus. And, you know, that's not doing the, the dancer any <laughs> at that time. Dancer. dancer. I, had other, I had other students in sure. classes. Um, it's not doing them any, any service. But honestly, like, I feel like I could come up with a, a nice dance minor. And he said, well, sure. Why don't you write it? He nice. He's an incredibly supportive chair. Yeah. So I did that. And he got it approved. And... Then they renewed my contract. Nice. You created your own job. I did. And the then, extension of your job. That's right. And then a year, I think a year later into that, I, I rewrote the dance major, turned it into a dance education major, which is just far more practical. Yeah. Especially in Tennessee, there were, at that point, there was no K-12 licensure for dance teachers, mm. even though they were teaching in public schools. So I saw this as a yeah. huge opportunity. Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Fiore Communications. Just like people, every business has a story to tell, and we've been helping our clients tell their story since 2001, because who you are as a company is just as important as what you do. To learn more about how telling your story can make a difference in your business, visit FioriCommunications.com. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. After you left UT Martin, where did you go next? I went to Fort Wayne Ballet. Okay. Uh, that was so, in the meantime, speaking of those eight fresh out of grad school professors, right. I met my then husband. And He was one of them? He was one of them. Okay. And he got a job in Fort Wayne. This is where, of course, it gets always a little sticky when you're a dual professor 
household. Right. Because when when new jobs and new opportunities the following spouse, I think that's what they call yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, right. exactly. And it usually typically will be the, the the spouse that follows is the one that doesn't have the the salary that you know the the salary with as much potential for growth. Right. So, dance Sadly, yeah. does not have the most potential for growth. <laughs> right. So moved moved to Fort Wayne, and I of course had to had to land on my feet. And who knew they were hiring the school director for this school slash professional ballet company at exactly the moment that I was moving there. Wow. And so I took that job, and then that's where um, they needed a little fill in gaps with their professional ballet company, and the artistic director said, "You know, are you willing to get back into shape?" And which was unpleasant, to say the least. That's kind of a direct question. Right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> a very unpleasant process. Yeah. Uh, but and then I did that. And so I then I was back dancing again. So I imagine shape was stamina, endurance, strength, all that stuff, right? Right. So that was that was that was that took some doing, probably. It took a lot of studio time. It was three to five miles of running. Every morning, it was going to the gym. It was a lot of sore muscles right. for a very long time. I bet. So was being in Fort Wayne at the school, was that a good experience for you? It was a challenging experience. I don't, I don't think it was um, – that was not one of the healthier environments for, for ballet. Hmm. Okay. So how long were you there? I was there for two years. Okay. And then where did you – Move on to from there. Ultimately, I landed myself back in school uh, at FSU. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I knew you ended up back again, and you right. pursuing your PhD. Your PhD. Yeah. In humanities, right? Interdisciplinary humanities, where you know, kind of going back to that whole Skidmore idea. I took, I took literature, I took feminist studies, and I took ballet, and mixed them all into one. So what what was the deciding factor in in choosing school over another job opportunity? I really did love being a professor. I loved the students. The schedule, of course, is ideal. It's wonderful. Talk about a lot of freedom. I, at that point, was doing a lot of freelance choreography, so I could go anywhere in the country and teach or choreograph. Um, But I also knew that I kind of wanted more. I wanted a broader base of knowledge as well as kind of more to teach. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of, you know, there's if you think, you know, doing plies every day in a ballet class is tedious, you should try teaching it. It gets <laughs> yeah. it's oh, you know, yeah. you're not even doing it, you're just yelling you're not even at doing it for yourself. You're, you're yelling right? at people to do it. So, it, you know, so yeah. I just thought I thought it would be a good opportunity and I'm just I guess one of those people that if I'm going to start thing something, I'm just going to really finish it. Mhm. And the best way to finish an MFA is already a terminal degree, meaning that's the highest degree in that field. But, you know, there's one more. So I thought right. I thought I might as well do it. And the nice thing about FSU, what l- led me to it was that interdisciplinary humanities program because I could rely on, once again, some of the best professors at FSU dance and then also have these amazing scholars in these other fields and then all work that we all work together. Right. So um, so was that the end of your dance career at that point? Uh, professionally dancing, yes, it was. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I went to teach 
dance, and then um, I was also a women's studies professor at University of Georgia. Okay. How was that? How did you like Athens? Athens is amazing. I, do, I really do miss it in a lot of ways. Uh, it's this little it's utopia. Uti- yeah. Yes. The, and not to mention the food is the food is absolutely amazing. So yeah. it's a quirky little place. Yeah. All right. So we haven't brought this up yet, but at some point in this story, you have twin daughters, right? Yes. They were born in Athens. They were born in Athens. Yes. Okay. So in 2014, you moved back to Tallahassee, correct? Correct. And why was that? What brought you back to town? Well, when the girls were two, I ended up finding myself a single parent. Okay. And at that moment, it was was relatively sudden, and I was a part-time professor at UGA. So I did not have health insurance, Mm -hmm. or no longer had health insurance. And um, was making $19,000 a year. And I, 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 UGA was wonderful. I got back on the, the full-time faculty for, I guess, a year and a half or two years after that. Uh, and they really worked with my schedule for when it came to, you know, being able to take care of the girls mm-hmm. uh, with no support system whatsoever. You know, my, my, parent, my family's in New York. I'm kind of on an island right. in Athens, Georgia. And so I really had to start looking at how I would support them and how I would support them well to my, you know, to, and not, not be struggling or, um, or sacrifice things. So I, I really wanted to take exactly what I loved about being a professor and apply it to a new career. Okay. And I had already been, you know, I'd been at FSU. I had friends and family in Tallahassee. And so, um, I started, you know, FSU came knocking to teach back in humanities and dance. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to kind of take that another leap of faith and move here. Um, and then I, I got a – I also kind of shoved my foot in the door at Department of Children and Families as a, as a legislative intern. Okay. To get some experience. Because surprisingly, it was relatively difficult to try to find a job (laughs) coming out of being a ballet professor. Yeah, the resume doesn't exactly align, right? I think it does personally. I think I think I've proven that it it's uh, you can they're easily transferable skills. Sure, not all of them. Right. Uh, I'm not doing an interpretive dance at a committee meeting, (laughs) although I I have threatened to do so. I'm not going to use my words now. (laughs) I'm going to dance my point. Let me let me dance. Why I need (laughs) I need funding. Um, All right. So legislative intern. Legislative intern. Right. But then you start taking. Um, communications jobs, right? Yeah. So what happened was I, I had two really great people to work for in at DCF, and they went, it was a you know, it was obviously a term position, and I guess there's a a process through the governor's office, or there was of kind of spotting people and, and assisting them in kind of finding that next placement. Uh, so kind of worked with with the governor's office of what am I interested in? And the woman that I spoke to said, you know, you should really think about things in communications as well. I did do a lot of, at, at DCF, a lot of communications work within okay. DCF, obviously. Speaking to constituents, um, legislators, and then also kind of putting out newsletters or emails to update 
kind of internal communications mm -hmm. for the state agency. And so, yeah, I started once again that, you know, rigmarole of applications right. of trying to find a new, the next job. And your next stop was at the Department of Education? It was, which was a really great fit with all of my Made sense. work in education. Right. Yeah. Okay. And you did that for a little while. I did. And then you ended up with Christina Johnson at On3 Public Relations. I did. So tell me about that experience and how that happened. Um, I was kind of... I, I think so. There were, I guess, two or three years where it was quick, quick to move to the next job, and that wasn't necessarily a conscious decision. But I think unconsciously or subconsciously, I was really behind. I, I, you know, I left, I left a career where I had achieved a high degree of success, and I was starting from scratch. I mean, I was starting with. 18-year-old legislative interns right? At, at, at that first job, <laughs> yeah. except with two children and, yeah. you know, rapidly considering, you know, being considered middle-aged. So <laughs> it, it was about kind of really moving through those next steps quickly mm -hmm. um, if I wanted to advance at all. So I, I, saw the, I saw the ad and I applied and there were a lot of really great experiences with clients uh, that were very different. And I thought that was a really valuable experience um, to, to be able to have people with different personalities, different needs, um, and different roles to right. play. Right. So the ability to understand concepts, communicate them well to other people, um, build relationships. It sounds a lot like teaching, right? It's not. It's, it's exactly teaching. Yeah. It's just a different audience. Right. So this was not unfamiliar territory in a way. It was not at all. Right. It leads to an opportunity to work for the Florida Trucking Association. So how did that connection happen? I was not looking for a job. I actually ran into someone in passing and there was a, you know, a last minute opening at the, it was the kind of director of communications or vice president was, had announced a departure very quickly, and it was mid-December with a January legislative session. Wow. And I think that day I emailed the resume to the CEO. Ken Armstrong. Ken Armstrong. By that afternoon, I had had my first phone interview. Ken Armstrong being who he is, I think I had seven more interviews. <laughs> He's in thorough. <laughs> He's thorough. <laughs> Uh, and then I think, you know, by a week, week and a half later, I was the new VP at Florida Trucking Association. So what, that had to be something you had to sit back and think about. I mean, that that's another big change. Yeah, it. I think really the, there's nothing that I have been doing for the past 20 years that's really inherently different. I think it's the content. Right. So is it, you know, is it protecting our parks with a client? Is it education? Is it ballet? Is it feminist theory? Is it trucking? You know, it's it's about learning that new material. And I think I've always I've always loved reading and writing and learning new concepts or theories. Uh, I was asked. I think my mother asked me. You know, you know, transportation and trucking. Is that really something that you're going to? stay interested in it. 
and I didn't know. Right. I, I truly didn't know, but uh, it was it was definitely a challenge. I went home to Albany uh, and really then New York City for Christmas break in between the two jobs, which was about a week and a half in between. Right. And I remember sitting at a bar in Soho with my iPhone and just poring over these transportation journals. That's really all I did because I, I think legislative session started, I think, that year, maybe January 9th. So you immediately had an advocacy role Correct. with the association. Yes. I, I think my first week I had to immediately go into Department of Highway and Safety or Highway Safety Motor Vehicles and talk about a bill that we were pushing. <laughs> was that intimidating to you? <laughs> it, was a li- it, was a, it was a little hard. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, as we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, but, you know, the context has changed, the content has changed, and the audience has changed. You're talking to much different people. I mean, not the legislative side, but the member side. I mean, that's that's a different group than you're used to dealing with. It is definitely different than a classroom of baby ballerinas. Yes. <laughs> I don't know that there's anything more different. <laughs> I, I think I agree with you with that. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So after, what, two, three years, you were you had this role and then Ken retired, mm-hmm. right? And then there was some selection process and you were chosen to be the the next CEO. So how how did how did you feel about that at first? I felt obviously there were there were certain things that in you know at least temporarily felt overwhelming or mm-hmm. scary. Sure. Um, but ultimately thanks to having three years under my belt and really Ken really empowered me. There was there was really nothing that I wasn't doing at FTA. Um, and and we were off, often mem- mirroring one another of what of our work, so there were very few things in the current or the previous job that I didn't wasn't also doing now as CEO. So was he? Were you kind of a CEO in waiting kind of situation? You know, at first, at first I wasn't, um, and and it was you know I was kind of told, you know, there are going to be a lot of people. After this job, I mean, it's one of the biggest, sure. obviously one of the biggest states. It's one of the biggest states for trucking, and it's also one of the biggest trucking associations, let alone uh, how respected it is in the state outside of trucking. Right. You know, it's a, it's an old, steady, strong advocacy voice in the state. Sure. So, you know, it was, I was not kidding my, you know, not going to fool myself that there couldn't, there might be 10 Trucking CEOs from other states coming in to apply for the job. You know, mm-hmm. come come down to Florida like everyone else. <laughs> right. But it ended up, I assume you were Ken's choice and it was a smooth transition. It was a great transition, yes. Yeah. I think when he told the board chair that he was retiring, the board chair talked to me 20 minutes later. Yeah. So that was that was good. That's awesome. Yeah. So what what kind of feedback did you get from members? Did you hear from them in in any way, offering support, I would assume? I really did. Um, they are a great group of people. And I know, I'm sure there might have been some skepticism when I first entered the job. But I think at this point, I had really, I had proven myself. Um, right. It's not like you came out of nowhere at this point. They right. knew you. And I'll tell you, it's not like I uh, touted my previous career. 
at all to the members. Did they I think, know? I think they're just finding out <laughs> just this, right this now. year. <laughs> <laughs> well, there have been other articles written about you, and so it's, pretty, it's hardly yes, a but, secret at this point. Yes, but I was already hired as the <laughs> CEO. <laughs> well, we hired a ballerina to run our exactly. association. Exactly. Um, that's funny. All right. Um, so I do want to spend a couple minutes, and again, this isn't the focus of the podcast, but about trucking and the trucking association. Yeah. So just, you know, just real quickly, what impact does the trucking industry have on our state? What impact does it not have on the state? Mm -hmm. It connects every aspect of our economy, every restaurant, grocery store, gas station, clothing, fertilizer, the water, you know, um, every single thing we eat, wear, touch, drive, drive on, use on a daily basis is coming to you by a truck. So... There are some really interesting statistics of uh, if if truck stops if if trucks stop America stops and it's one of those things by two, by day two or by day three ATMs don't even have money um, hospitals don't have blood supplies or oxygen or you know so it's it is so essential and vital to Florida right so. Is trucking just huge semis on the interstates, or is it also UPS delivery vans? Or I, what? What is the whole spectrum of the trucking industry that that's part of the association? So that's a great question. Uh, it is absolutely those semi trucks, uh, but it's also yes, smaller delivery vans, sprinter vans. Uh, it's the warehouses, it's the shippers, it's the transportation attorneys, the insurance companies, the OEMs or the um, the manufacturers, mm-hmm. uh, all of them are all members of the association. So whether you are you have a private fleet of trucks, if you are a company that has things that have your own truck trucking company or uh, hire a, a separate trucking company to haul your goods, um, or if you provide any service to a company that has trucks, right. they're probably a member of our association. Okay. Are you optimistic about the future of the industry? I am. I think things are changing so rapidly. I think um, there's a new image of trucking that is developing. Uh, there, obviously, with the visibility, you're seeing a new generation new demographics in trucking. This is a baby boomer industry. And so you're having mass retirements. And those jobs have to be replaced by people. And those people are different now. And I think that, you know, the the godfathers, and I say that lovingly, the godfathers of trucking. The five families. (laughs) Have done, have created this industry in Florida and have done an amazing job and their knowledge and expertise and vision is limitless. Mm. But they are retiring and we have to make sure that this new generation is prepared to carry on what they're doing and also adjust for the times because everything else in our society is changing. Right. So we have to reflect that change as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, two final questions and then we're out. Um, One is, Alex, looking back, what is one thing or person that has changed the trajectory of your life to this point? I think I would say my mother, because when she 
took a huge chance while I was a child to go back to school and start a completely new career that took 12 extra years of school to do and left left our family for a year to train in Boston and was up studying at 10 o'clock at night when she put her children to bed and was up at 4 o'clock in the morning writing papers before we woke up and had to go to school. Hmm. That showed me and kind of modeled for me what I could do later on in my life. Right. All right, final question. The podcast is named How I Got Here. So we've talked about how you got to this point in your life. Where do you think here might be for you in the next three to five years? I have honestly no idea. I feel like I feel like I I keep stumbling into the next thing. Probably somehow. a whole new career that you don't even right. know about yet. I'm going to be an astronaut. An astronaut. <laughs> right. That's that's next on the checklist. Yeah. I don't really know if I care about where I am or what I'm doing. I think the same thing that I have kind of followed my entire life is the most important thing of being satisfied with the things that I'm doing on a daily basis. Because I think a name and a title and an important company is great, but I think if you're not enjoying and feeling inspired by where you are, I don't I don't know what what the reason for being there is. Okay. It's a good non-answer, Great. wasn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> you didn't give me anything. <laughs> I used to be a press secretary. I know how to do that. <laughs> That's awesome. That was Alex Miller. She provides an important reminder about how discipline and excellence are a great foundation for wherever life leads you, no matter how unexpected. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications, who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts, and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.